Welcome to Lobster Brain, the podcast that shows you what lobsters can teach you about rewiring your brain. Why lobsters? Lobsters fight to see who becomes top lobster. If they win, their brains change to embrace their new status. And if they lose, their brains change too to cope with that change in hierarchy. It's called neuroplasticity. As humans, we can rewire our brains too. So what are the turning points that highly successful people go through to reach top lobster status in the human world? In this podcast, you'll find out. I'm Danny Donerkey. And I'm Lisa Morton. And in this episode of Lobster Brain, you're going to hear from top lobster, Henry Winter. Henry is a football journalist who's been writing about football for the past 35 years. He's the chief football writer for the Times newspaper, and he's also written a number of books about famous players and managers. I'm really happy that you're going to hear from Henry for the end of our first season of Lobster Brain because Henry's been such a support from day one since I told him we were doing this. And the one thing that you will find listening to this is that Henry likes to ask you the questions. So there's a little bit of dodging around some of the questions, but it's an amazing listen. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, I think he helps us learn lessons about many of our previous guests. And he speaks frequently about high-performing people in the world of sport and beyond. You're going to hear Henry speak about some of the other top lobsters we've had on Lobster Brain, but also other people that he's written about and met and admired, like Gareth Southgate, Marcus Rashford and Sir Alex Ferguson. One of the great questions that Henry speaks about is how you decide as a journalist what you write about and what you don't write about. He's really blown away by the young footballers in the world these days that come from a less privileged background than he does. And he speaks about the privilege that he's had throughout his lifetime that's put him in this position to be able to decide what he gives and what he doesn't give our listeners. It's interesting that Henry, from the get-go, says that he's not a top lobster. And he believes that everybody in his family is far more accomplished than he is. And he kind of he's ranked himself as the bottom lobster in his own family. That kind of blows my mind because... He is so good at what he does. And as we found out, Danny, you know, he doesn't just write about football. He's found the soul and the heart of football. And that's what he writes about. As you'll hear, Henry is such a high achiever, but at times he finds it hard to recognise it. I am actually the most boring person. Oh, no. Seriously, I'm not just saying that. My brother and sister will say, my brother and sister are far more successful than I am. In, in your mind. No. Are you in, recording this? In, yeah. In, yeah, I agree. In, in Qatar, I was getting people coming up to me and asking me about my brother because he's, he's a Cambridge mm. academic, he's an yeah. arm, and he's just built a... When my parents died, he uh, they left him some money and he built a, a mosque in Cambridge, which is, first, it's beautiful, and secondly, it's just the people that go there. So one of his students rang me the other day and said, um, I'm now running the Red Crescent in Istanbul, she rang me the day after the earthquake. We're pulling kids out of rubble at the moment. We have at the moment, uh, I think 50, 60 babies under the age of six months. We don't know where the parents are. Can you m- just get English football to sort of put some words out, raise some money? And then she made a presentation to UEFA yesterday. And I got a message back from UEFA saying how moved they were by her. So, but she's one of Tim's protégés. And it, so it makes me very proud that yeah. uh, my brother's done that because he gets a bit of stick in the press at times, but he's a good guy. What does he get stick for? 
for being probably the most high-profile Muslim in the country. But then he was warning about Al-Qaeda even before 9-11. I mean, we would have that conversation at home. Um, and my sister is even more talented. She's an amazing artist. So I, you've got the boring one. If you, if you want to work your way up from Europa Conference League positions to Europa League to Champions League, you can, I'll introduce you. Because Tim doesn't do interviews. And I get people, I get Radio 4 say, it'd be really nice if the two of you sat down mm. and you explain, well, you're a thuggy football writer and your brother's got, you know, he's a Cambridge scholar, exhibitionist, triple star first. And, you know, he, when he goes and preaches in the mosque in Regent's Park with Ibn Yusuf, Cat Stevens, just their cues all around the block. I mean, he's, he's amazing. And I said, if I went on the radio with my brother, I would, he would end up in a fight and, <laughs> uh, and he would win. <laughs> so anyway, so I am I am very much the uh, the minor crayfish in the lobster winter Henry, stronghold. But you spend your life day in day out telling stories of other people, and you're so private. And I've known you for several years now, and you never talk about yourself. So why is that? I mean, why don't you think that you're you've got the status that say your brother and your because, sister have? Um, well, it's probably uh, I've got this belief possibly bordering on arrogance at times because of the world that I grew up in, because of the privilege that I had. Choir boy in Westminster Abbey, went to a nice school, art prizes, singing prizes as kids. Uh, a loving family, beautiful house. Um, so there was never any doubt. That, so any adversity that you, you hit, which everyone hits, whether personally or professionally, you always sort of go back to that bedrock of belief. You know, that's which is pretty unwavering. But I've also been surrounded by people who the pursuits of excellence, I mean, you two at the top of your profession. So, but friends that I was at school with, what they went on and have achieved is just unbelievable, whether it's in the arts, whether it's lawyers, whether it's advertising, whether it's acting, rock stars, politicians. So I've always had that culture of the pursuit of excellence. And you're always striving. You know, you climb one hill and you, you want to climb another hill. And also, I think the world that I work in is just, I find it an unbelievable privilege to work. So yesterday I was with Gareth Southgate uh, at Wembley, squad announcement. And you're sitting there in the away dressing room and just listening to Southgate. I'm not a huge fan of his inability to change games. and I'm probably one of his biggest critics. But I quite like the way that, you know, we were sitting side by side as close as we are. And he would just... I find that people who get to the very top, there's a certain grace about them. There's a certain calmness and maturity and humility. And definitely that with Southgate. And, you know, they're managers that I've criticised. David Moore has criticised. You know. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm tight. well, obviously at Manchester United. And, but, you know, they just hand, handle it so well. Anyway, the, this England squad is just a privilege and a joy to cover. But what I love about this generation... Uh, of England players, it's obviously it's a broad generation. I'm just going from sort of 18 to 29. Is they're really good people, and I went into so I've got the job now at the times that I wanted since I was 14, 15. So school, prep school, school, university was all about sort of getting get well, the latter two stages, getting this job. But I went in to Fleet Street, knocking on doors in Fleet Street. I had no connections there in 1985, just after high school, and all my friends who were going off to be, I don't know doctors, lawyers, politicians, amazing jobs. They were saying, you're absolutely mad. This is, you know, A, they said it's social suicide. 
Beaver said, professionally, there's absolutely nothing into it. I said, well, I love football. I like words, some of them, and um, I like traveling. And then just so you go in there and then just to sort of work now with this generation of England players. So I got in because I wanted to sort of describe free kicks and go to sort of different countries. But I actually sit down and talk to someone like Marcus Rashford, who I'm, what, 30 years older than him at least. And just he energizes me. He gives me ideas. And then just that humility that he had to take on and look after, basically feed the kids of this country. As someone from a, you know, a nice background, the concept of food banks, the concept of um, free school meals, you know, I mean, at, at school, I, I ate off benches from boats that were washed up after the Armada. I mean, the privilege that we had there. But so to, to listen to Mark, and I went out, I took out his, uh, his mum for lunch and just to listen to Mel, what she went through and Marcus's story about, you know, lying in bed at night, hearing his mum cry herself to sleep because she couldn't she was doing three jobs uh to sort of get money to feed the kids and then to hear sort of Marcus he was talking about there was one person who came to him and she heard said to uh, her neighbor said can you just look after the kids at breakfast because I got a really early job interview and she went and sat in the local park hoping that her neighbor would feed the kids because she didn't have any food at home so when you hear those stories and because of I don't know, maybe it's the age I am. I've no I got to know so one or two people in Whitehall and they were saying Boris Johnson will run rings around Marcus Rashford. He's he's Eton, he's Oxford, he's number ten. I said there's only number one that I thought I'd tell a joke, there's only one number ten that's gonna win all this, and that's Marcus Rashford, because he's lived all this. And and they were saying I had conversations with them. I said, seriously, do not take on Marcus Rashford. Do not take on this young English generation, because you look at Rashford, and this is coming back to me in a way. But this is what I find completely inspiring, and why it's a privilege to do this job, is because of what he's experienced, because he's got a platform, because he's absolutely motivated, because of what his mother went through, and. I thought it was fantastic that Marcus Rashford, in a very elegant way, he didn't crow about it when there was the government U-turn, which he could have done, um, basically put Boris Johnson in his place. Now, whatever your politics, I'm not particularly political, but an area that I grew up in, Westminster, you know, I'd occasionally go to sleep at night listening to sort of Big Ben. I know that area. I know a lot of these politicians. So actually to see a kid like Marcus Rashford, and it's not simply Marcus. I mean, Danny Rose, on the eve of the of the World Cup, talked to us about his mental health problems. I've never had mental health issues. I had to read up on it. And again, it was just like listening to, to Marcus with the, the food. It was, just so, it was just so educational for me. And then, of course, we're, we're, we're conduits. We release the, 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 the message. And you know that these players are doing so much good off the pitch as well as on. Last week, I was at a, a school for kids with autism and Asperger's. And Jordan Henderson came because he did so, you know how much work, amazing work he did with the, the NHS and the players together during uh, lockdown. And he was brilliant. And there were, all these kids were outside and he was having a kickabout with them. And there was one girl, lovely girl, um, sitting inside and she the noise was too much for her. And even with headphones, she just couldn't go because of the sensory overload. Again, something I don't understand. Um, read up on and talked to her parents and she was just sitting inside because she couldn't go outside Jordan Henderson came inside and sat down and talked to her about Liverpool for 
10, 15 minutes. And then I got a message from her mum saying she's a massive Liverpool fan. So I've just, I went through all the Liverpool programmes I got and, and sent them to her. But you just look at the impact that Jordan had on that guy. I mean, he probably, you know, the message from the mother said it all, you know, she's changed his life. So just coming back, Danny, to your, in, a, in my usual, very long-winded, very broad sheet, <laughs> I've got loads of space to fill away. <laughs> it's an education for me to coming from my background to actually experience all this and to and and it actually makes me very proud and vindicated in a career that I have chosen to be working with people like that who are basically for me the moral leaders of this country particularly as probably for the first 25 years the focus on footballers was falling out of nightclubs and now they're helping put the NHS back on their feet what do you think is about you that kind of drew you to the work and has made you so good well, first, I don't think I'm that good. Um, look, I'm I'm at a certain level, but without getting too full about it, I'm probably Europa League, maybe, sorry, with Graham's back to <laughs> Everton, third qualifying round Champions League, if I can get in there. Um, I mean, when I go to a football writer's event, I look around the room and go, Christ, I'm one of the oldest here, so I'm going to make sure I'm the last one to leave. But I just look at all the talent. And I've always had this thing that you've got to keep running to stay ahead of all this young talent coming through. Now I look around the room and there's an unbelievable generation that's come through uh, who've got opinions on all of football. They're, they're statistical, they're technical, they're tactical. They're also quite moral as well. So nation states coming in, situation at um, particularly Newcastle when the Saudis took over, some of the younger writers, their, their polemic on that was just outstanding. I think, my God, you know, I'm not simply just running to stay ahead of these guys i'm running to keep up because they are when i say guys it's you know it's women as well there's some fantastic female writers partly on the back of the lioness's success um so yeah so i am good but the one thing i've got well two things i've got two strengths if i was going to be arrogant for a moment i've got i've got a work ethic absolutely get up in the morning get on get in the car just go and work i love that and i love going to matches if anyone does, there's another guy who actually based up here who I think is going to do more matches for me this season. And whenever I see him in a match, I go, oh, <laughs> you know, I was just hoping, you know, I mean, lockdown, I did, I don't know, about 160, 170 matches that season because they were, the government was convinced the country was going to go up in flames. And so they staggered matches on throughout the week. The other thing I've got is I don't need much sleep. And I'm yeah. four and a half, five hours, I think I had, what, four hours last night. Tonight, I'll do the match. I'll put, go home, have three hours because I've got two interviews in London in the morning. Lunch with Ken Bates, which is a like <laughs> you, you might need to sleep after that. And then I'm going to see the Proclaimers with a mate. So, uh, yeah, but you've got to. So, that is, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I mean, when I hear people say, oh, I need seven hours. Yeah. But you, so we do realize that there's probably maybe three or four people out of a hundred that can survive on five hours sleep. And Ferguson's one of them. And if you ever say to Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, oh yes, like one of my colleagues did, Ferguson was talking about, you know, he asked him how, much, how many hours sleep. He said, I only need five hours. Mm. And the, the journalist was a few years back said, oh, like Margaret Thatcher. Don't <laughs> compare me. <laughs> but you know, but bizarrely, completely out of the, well, of the many mistakes I've made, and interesting listening to your podcast, which which is brilliant, one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. I find most people who you see at the top, who you would call top lobsters, I would say most of them are motivated by adversity and the things that go wrong. Praises 
irrelevant, don't really like praise. Praise will last. Well, Sir Alex Ferguson said it best. Praise lasts for 10 minutes in the dressing room. Defeats, I mean, you can talk to Sir Alex now and he will mention defeats the German teams in Mighty Seven. So, but the mistakes that I've made, one of them around Sir Alex Ferguson, the Benfica game, I still think about that every day. I should have absolutely gone out and backed him. And I didn't. And I was critical of him. And what happened in the Benfica game? Uh, they they lost and everyone said, this is, excuse me, I think it was about 2002, 2003. And everyone was saying, oh, he's gone. He's a busted flush. Barcelona was, you know, that the treble, great. But those, the glory days are behind him. And that's one of the things, I've, many things I find difficult about. At times you have to go for people. Like I'm, I've written two books with Kenny Dalgleish, but the whole, and I've got, the hugest admiration for him as a player who I admired growing up, although I'm not a Liverpool fan for the record, um, but also what he did during Hillsborough. And you look again, coming back to what we're talking about with the young England players, the moral substance of footballers who are just almost like the glue of this country, not simply with what they do on the, on the pitch. Football, I understand it's the new religion and all that, but actually what they do off the pitch as well. And Kenny held uh, Liverpool, the city, the club, the city, the grieving area, the families um, together during, you know, during that unbelievable period, which shamefully government, thank you, certain newspapers, well done, uh, has just been, you know, it's still running to this day, the trauma of Hillsborough. So just coming back to, to your point, sometimes criticizing people who you have the hugest respect for, sometimes that can be different. And the flip side of that is there's certain times that you should absolutely stand up for them. And I should have stood up for Ferguson then. So there are moments around the country that trigger memories of the mistakes I've made. Uh, many have probably made more mistakes than had successes. And I can be driving along the motorway. And at, there's certain points on the A1, two points just before it hits the M62, where over the past 30 years, I've had calls from the office saying, you've just been scooped on this story. The first one, I almost pulled onto the hard shoulder and vomited. Because you just think, you know, you've let you've let your employers down, you've let yourself down in a way. So, you know, it's always the it's always the mistakes that you take with you. How do you feel about those relationships? I know people have a huge amount of trust in you, and and we've talked about that. But when you do have to criticise somebody that you have a good relationship with, you know, like Sir Alex. I mean, d how does that feel for you? Is that, is that comes with the... No, you have, well, you have to do it because you've got to be honest. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, I'm a weatherman. You know, if I look out the window and it's, you know, Manchester's beautiful weather, <laughs> but if I look out the window and say, you know, it's it's peeing down when it's glorious sunshine, then, you know, you, you've, you've got to reflect what you see. Um, social media makes life interesting. Mm. Um but I quite like that. I quite like when thousands of people are giving me stick. Well, I do. Gen I have to say, I, I know this may sound weird, but if I've got a thousand Liverpool fans calling me a posh twat because I've criticised them for booing the national anthem, um, I believe what I believe, and they believe what they believe, and so obviously there's going to be a few f sparks. But also, I am, you know, because of the background that I come from. What have I got to complain about? I and mean, I've got friends of female presenters at, at Sky and, and elsewhere, and the misogyny that gets thrown at them is absolutely disgusting. Um, so, you know, what have I got to complain about? You know, I've got huge admiration for the, the England black players who stood up 
knowing the pressure was going to be on them in that Euro final. And I, I knew what was going to happen. So Harry Kane takes the first one, nails it. Harry Maguire takes the second one, nails it. Two, and you just, you just know the pressure. That's, there's so much pressure, particularly three young players, Marcus, Jaden, and uh, Bakayo, walking from the halfway line with England, with all that baggage on England at Wembley. Southgate's a manager, the man who missed the most famous penalty in, in our history. And the, the eyes of the world watching him against Italy, against you know, was it Donnarumma was in goal, who's a huge, colossal guy. And then to have that extra pressure on them of knowing that if they missed, just the tsunami of racism that would hit them on, on social media that would probably get said maybe on one or two phone-ins, whatever. And it's not simply about them. It's about the abuse that their families take as well. The whole, you let your country down. But So look, what have I got to complain about if someone calls me a posh twat on Twitter? How do you, I'm curious about the criticizing people thing, because I've found it on this podcast, you know, people are generous, they come on and give us their time and you kind of feel like it's difficult to go deep with them because you want to honor them and, and not challenge that. So I know that journalists know things about people that they don't write. How do you gauge that? I think it's almost the stories that you don't write, are almost the most important ones, because you know certain things about certain people and you just don't write them. Um, I would, I'm not the type of person who's particularly interested in people's private life, so I wouldn't really sort of touch on that anyway. I always, when I finish a, a piece, I do two things. I, I read it from the bottom upwards, because then that, for me, takes the emotion out of it. It takes the football, if there is any football logic argument in it, and you just look at it, you look at each paragraph, just to make sure that it makes sense. And then, you, uh, then I read it thinking... Uh, would their, what would their parents think of this piece? Particularly if it's an interview. It's a personal interview with someone who is opening up on emotional things, and, and players do. So, I mean, I've interviewed your lovely friend, Jack Grealish, and I would always look through that afterwards before pressing send, that moment of reflection before pressing send to the office, just to say, what would his parents think? Is, is that a true reflection of him? Um, Sometimes you cock up. I mean, I've made some terrible mistakes in in print. And, you know, it goes out. And you, there's no hiding place on, on social media. But I also, because I am a bit thick at times and say stupid things, it just ends up in, you know, I just get into stupid situations. So, like, when um, Alan Pardew was at Newcastle United and Mike Ashley was uh, chairman there, I said... I'm not a huge fan of Mike Ashley. I gave him a bit of stick, a lot of stick, because I said, you have no emotional empathy with this incredible institution, which, you know, every Geordie life revolves around. I said, there's no way you're going to, I wrote this piece, there's no way he's going to back um, um, Alan Pardew as manager. And I was so confident he wouldn't and that he would sack him the next week. I said, well, and if he does back Alan Pardew, you know, there's no way he's going to, but if he does, I'll swim the tine. I just thought, <laughs> well, <I'm> just thanks, <laughs> something like that. And then, I, so I did think, and I sort of posted this on Twitter or whatever, and then about two weeks later, I was just sort of flicking through my mentions, and it just went into meltdown, and it was all hashtag speedos, hashtag, <laughs> hashtag brown fish. Uh, unfortunately, I found out what brown fish were halfway across the, across the time. And then, of course, this whole thing takes on a life of its own, and I'm getting emails to, I was at the Telegraph at the time, getting emails from the Port of Tyne Authority saying, you're dopey football correspondent who's going to swim the tyne 
please be aware that we have to fish two students out every year. It's not something to be uh, to be laughed at. And I go into these things in that slightly sort of happy-go-lucky Cub Scout way. Um, you know, oh, isn't life a big Famous Five adventure? And then find myself having to go on training swims I had to get a guide and I ran out this guide who's <laughs> gloriously dismissive um, had to get a guide to, to swim the Tyne and I ran out and said yes and he said yes I've heard you're swimming the uh, the Tyne he said yes I'll help you and there was a pause and he went which ways or length ways so I said but what was brilliant is and maybe it's the, the power of football you know a thousand Geordies turned up on the yeah. quayside and a mate of mine who works at Sky, because um, I was up for the match that day and uh, Newcastle United were playing Manchester United. So Sky were up there and um, Jeff Treves was came down Keyside because he thought it'd be quite funny. And he said, and this is a historic moment. <laughs> Everything's a historic moment for Sky, I've, I've found it. This is a historic moment for Sky because we've never had a drowning live in high definition before. <laughs> and uh, at which point I did the sort of top bombing and 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 Did you wear a wetsuit or not? I did, I did. Yeah, oh, and that was another thing. So I got this, this is the joys of social media. So I went for a training run and a swim and wore a wetsuit. And then people were saying, a marine biologist who I think was winding me up said, make sure that it's not a grey uh, wetsuit because it's the seal mating seat. <laughs> and then another marine biologist comes up, don't be stupid, but it is the sea otter mating seat. <laughs> So, uh, but then, you know, the goodness of the, the Geordie people, I did it for the Bobby Robson Foundation who do such amazing work up there. And they, um, so they raised money. Uh, Alan Pardew was incredibly generous. And I then got three minutes after the match when I'd thawed out and got rid of all the brown fish from my hair. Um, I went up to, I got taken up to see Mike Ashley. So from saying something really stupid on social media, it actually got me three minutes with Mike Ashley and got me to sort of understand. So out of a doing something stupid, almost drowning, I actually got the story out of it. He probably sacked him just to get you to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you do do stupid things at times. Like when the Ukrainian League, still can't, but this was, this was actually stupid and a bit dangerous what I did. But when the Ukrainian League restarted, everyone quite in this country was so emotional about the Ukrainians. And, and you just think, well, what, what can you do? And I said to my boss, I said, well, Ukrainian Super League's just starting out. I'm going to go and cover their first game because it's interesting. I wanted to see Mudrik. Everyone was talking about Mudrik, play for Shakhtar, Donetsk and Kiev. Um, and I think it will, it will make a story. And then, of course, I because I'm actually quite stupid, it this then sort of just snowballs, gets out of control. And within two hours... I'm being fitted up for a tracker so they can track me from space. I've got a ex um, secret service special, sorry, special forces guy following me around over there. I had to go on a hostile environment awareness course in case I got kidnapped. I mean, if I get kidnapped, I mean, if they start tickling my toes, I will, I'll tell them the sort of you know the the uh, the pin code to Buckingham Palace. So I, I mean, that was never going to work. And then I've I was there and I got told so i flew to poland i got told to wait at the border because they got cold feet back in the office and it was quite funny i had this driver who took me to the border and said why why are we waiting so sorry we've got to wait here we've got to get permission and uh, she said um why are you quite important um so it might be an insurance thing or murdoch didn't want to lose me or whatever 
And then after about five minutes, they got clear and she said, you're obviously not that important. <laughs> you're absolutely <laughs> expendable. But again, coming back to the sort of the, the central thing of going to a place like Kiev, staying in a hotel, getting up early in the morning, walking around and just seeing like an 18, 19 year old soldier standing there in his ill-fitting uniform with his girlfriend. She was clutching a, a rose in a cellophane wrapper in floods of tears and he was going off to war. He might be dead now, you know, defending his country. Again, how privileged am I in my safe European home to, to quote the clash that, that I've never had to experience that. Um, and then because I love choral music, I love churches, uh, Westminster Abbey played a huge part of my childhood. Uh, there was a church nearby and I went in there to just to listen to see if there was any sort of early morning mass or some singing or whatever the choir was there. Obviously the choir, sadly, they're probably all off at war. And there were probably about seven or eight couples in their sort of 70s and 80s who were just sort of sitting there praying that their villages would be okay, that their children would be okay. And again, puts things into, in, into perspective. And what I found with this job that I came in just to write about the greatness of Hoddle, the greatness of Talgleish, it's actually expanded. And now as a football correspondent, we are so fortunate because we're writing about obesity, because we're writing about um, COVID, we cover everything now. I've noticed uh, a few times today, you've said that you're actually quite stupid. And you, when you see other journalists, you're, not, you, you're good, but you're not Champions League level. I'm wondering like what's going on. You're clearly not stupid and you're clearly at the top of your game. So what's going on with this? It's it's not sort of false modesty when you've got a brother who was a Cambridge scholar who's voted I think I get messages from my kids because it goes up and down, but he's he's he was voted it's an annual thing, but he's the thirty seventh or thirty sixth most influential Muslim in the world. You know, they're sort of um, Islamic leaders who weren't as high up as, as my brother. So, yeah, it's it's not false modesty. If I mean, I you know, I got I managed to get my A levels. I got into university, but but for me, academia and I went to amazing school, incredibly privileged. But I knew what I wanted to do. So it wasn't as if I need to get the best A levels. I need to go to. I mean, I got turned down by Cambridge, but I'd only just turned seventeen. So they said, "Do you want to do it again?" I've been accepted by Edinburgh. I wanted to go to Edinburgh and just play for the university, uh, sports editor of the student newspaper. I kind of had everything planned out. And that was one of the, I wasn't particularly close to my parents, although they were amazing, loving parents, very generous and all that. Wasn't particularly close to them because we were different characters. But one thing they did instill in us, well, apart from the obvious things of work hard and be nice to people, but, at, but just do what you do in life. Your profession must be your passion. So my brothers say this academic um, Islamic cleric my sister's an exceptional artist and I love what I do so coming back to your point I, I mean they're a lot brighter people than me in the press box you know I'll be sitting next to you know Oxbridge scholars and people from housing estates who have just got this amazing intelligence and that's one thing that really annoyed me about the perception of footballers the majority of footballers I know are really bright they might not have strings of O's and A levels, you know, or degrees, but they have that common, more common sense than a lot of academics I've met. But yeah, there's a, I'm, I'm bright enough. 
Let's go back to the arrogant bit, though, because you said that a few yeah. times too. Yeah. And in your line, you have to hold people to account. But the thing that seems to me um, that makes you really come alive is when you talk about the amazing things that people do and the legacies people are leaving. So you're not at all arrogant. So I don't understand why you have this perception or you feel you want to kind of identify as that. I, I know myself very well. <laughs> and I do have this bedrock of belief that borders on arrogance. Right. And I just, maybe I hide it well. But yeah. I love this idea that everyone, you could say, right, describe someone in three words. I mean, I'll be stroppy one day and absolutely charming the next day. I will be, you know, I'd... It's a broken sort of almost sort of prism in terms that you look through of someone's character. I don't think, you know, I, I can be moody and I can be completely sane. I can have a brain fizzing full of ideas and then absolutely nothing in there. And I'll be sitting there thinking, have I actually thought about anything for the last half hour or so? And there's, there's nothing in there. So I love this idea that we're all sort of black and white individuals. We're not. We're no. just sort of made up of all sorts of different things. So, but coming back to your point, yeah, there's a little bit of arrogance in me. Definitely. Mm. I have, I'm not short of, I think it was it Tim Howard in one of your earlier pods, which was fascinating when he was talking about the difference between self-belief and self-confidence. And I, I completely understand that belief, not an issue for me because of the kind of the world that I grew up in and everyone around was just saying kind of, this is what you do in life. You go and you achieve, you have to get to the top. Um, but yeah, and I think that instills a little bit of arrogance. When do you feel most vulnerable? Very, very rarely. The one thing I do at the end of a week, I'm very honest with myself and I have in my mind, I could be anywhere. I could be on the way to a party, on the way to a match, on the way to the pub, wherever. And I will have almost like a sort of debrief and just go through the week, the pieces that I've done well, the pieces so... You know, my intro, say, on a Monday morning to a match report, the Guardians one was better, the Males one was really good. Why didn't I come up with that idea? And it's almost like sort of end of week accounting just to sort of see all those. Um, but far, I don't feel vulnerable. I was surprised to hear that you don't or didn't feel close to your parents yeah. when it was such a loving environment that yeah. gave you this um, ability to I don't have see, self -belief. I don't see why that would be mutually exclusive. I don't see why you can't, you know, I love my parents, but I wasn't close to them. If I had a conversation with my father that lasted more than 10 minutes, because we're, you know, I mean, he was an amazing architect, his buildings. And I mean, I've gained one or two things from him in terms of if I walk down a street, I will look at all the buildings and I'll go, is that Corten Steel? What's that? So that's why we were late. That's, yeah, that's why we were late. It was actually. I was hoping, that's why I asked him about what, uh, <laughs> no. yeah. So, so, um, loving parents, but just not close to them because I mean, I can remember when I got, I mean, one or two books I've done, they've done quite well. And one of them was at, um, number one in the Sunday times list. And this is a classic thing my parents would do. Um, they say, Oh, uh, how's your book doing? By the way, Tim's latest, my brother's latest Sheikh Abdul Hakim Malad. He's name gets longer and longer as so he becomes even more and more distinguished um his latest book has just been taken on by the ashmolean or fitzwilliam or whatever and i said okay how many how many copies it sold and they said when you're tim's level he doesn't sell he just gets invited to present his book to these distinguished um so look fantastic people gave me great privilege but i'm not you know and i love my brother and sister but i mean i'll talk to them once a year we're not we're not close mm.
But, you know, going back to the point you made about one minute you're fizzing with ideas, the next minute you kind of, you've got a drought and that one day you might be stroppy, one day you might feel extremely benevolent. That is so refreshing to hear, isn't it? Because there's such, I think there is such a pressure and there's so many podcasts like this as well, you know, where it's all about being the best you can be every single day. And the whole point of Lobster Brain is that it's exposing that myth that we all feel brilliant all the time. Mm but we still can be brilliant. And, and it's sometimes fear of failure or the days that we, as Alex Ferguson, you know, the defeats yeah. that make us strong and propel us further. Yeah, but I do feel genuinely happy. Mm. But I do go to various events, various moments, you know, like moments on the motorway where I get a call from the office and go back to those moments. And maybe it's because I feel I have got a slightly, slightly arrogant side that I just need that those hair shirt moments. Mm. What's your biggest fear? Oh, anything happening to the kids. No. I mean, if I get sacked tomorrow, I absolutely back myself to go again. I've never had coming back to that bedrock of belief. Um, I mean, interesting listening to a lot of the, you know, your podcasts, a lot of people, a lot of people that I've interviewed, a lot of them have had a trauma, an issue in the background. So Again, where you fall into these things. Ben Ainsley, the famous Olympic sailor, was in the press room at Stamford Bridge. I quite fancy myself as a sailor. I've been a couple of times around the Serpentine and not sunk. So I just <laughs> went over and said, oh, Ben, you know, I've got a, I've got a canoe at home. <laughs> and um, just got talking and we just got on. And, he's, and within like a sort of couple of weeks, I was crewing for him and the round the Island race, and I was told by one of his crewmates. I mean, it was a beautiful catamaran, eight Aussie grinders doing all the sailing, and Ben just handed me the map, and I said, "It's the round the island race. If, as long as you keep the island right <laughs> on your left, you're not going to go wrong." And he said, "Well, it's a little bit more technical than that." But again, this opportunity to see, you know, someone close up who was just so brilliant at their job, like little things, like Ben would count down for when the crew knew that he was going around. And this is one of the, this is probably our greatest sailor since I know, Nelson, whatever. And it was, and he were counting down and it was a really flat day. We were coming up the Solent, eight hours it took to, to get around there. It was a really slow race. And Ben was just in front of one of his big rivals who was just behind. And he was counting down and all these really experienced Aussie guys who are now with Ben on one of his uh, America's Cup missions, they were looking around saying, you know, you could you can normally count the ripples on the surface or you see the ripples on the surface and count down towards them. And there was nothing. It was flat as a mill pond. And then he counted down. And when he got to one, the guy sprung into action and the wind miraculously appeared. And they were looking at him, so dumbfounded. And then when we got to uh, dry land, they were the first ones in. I said, oh, guys, I'm doing the interview here. And they were the first ones in the questions. And how did you know the wind was about to pick up at that point? I would say it's quite simple. Uh, I'm a football fan and uh, there was a lady hanging out her washing next to Fratton Park. <laughs> and so he could just see the wind just pulling the sheets in that direction. And so, again, you know, we journalists, you know, first draft of history, we are ringside to greatness. And so to experience Ben doing that. So I've kind of got away from your question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, not deliberately, I think. Not, not deliberately. <laughs> but no, but just, you know, how lucky am I? Oh. This was the reason why I mentioned Ben Ainsley. So in his darkest moment, when he was having problems with his back and he had some surgery and he was down at Bisham Abbey and he was on his own and just one of his sort of mates said, go and see him, 
do a piece. It's on the eve of the, the London Olympics. It's a huge, huge thing. I think he was going for his fifth gold. And there was a, another guy, I think it was a Norwegian guy who was up against who really fancied himself. And you knew it was going to be a dogfight down at Weymouth. And I went to see him. And one of the questions that I ask all, I'm, I mainly do football, but I asked Ben, I said, you know, what's happened in your youth to trigger this drive? You know, and with, with a lot of the Olympians, it was, I know, parents are broken up or they were bullied at school. And I think Ben has spoken about this publicly. And he said, I think he was bullied at school and he poured everything into, into sailing. And that was his way of expressing himself. And, um, but so coming back to your point, I never had any childhood trauma, you know, I mean, it was just, it was kind of all to use Ben's expression, plain sailing. So listening to what Rodney Marsh went through, I found that I had to listen to that back again. Know, and maybe a lot of your top lobsters have been driven by something in their youth, whether it was the violence of, was it the grandfather? Yeah, by his father as well. Father as well. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I, I never had any of that. We're not only talking to people who have had traumatic pasts. Um, you know, it's about, I think you just nailed it there, talking about the fact that even you have major challenges. People wouldn't see that when they read your copy and they read your stories. They would expect that you could, that just rolls off all the time and you, you know you never kind of have a moment where you think somebody's done a better article than you so I think yeah, it's but, refreshing to hear that yeah but two of my best friends one's a fighter pilot was a fighter pilot and he saw some unbelievable things lost friends in combat and um, another one is a is an eye surgeon and I just think of the I'm not knocking the, my profession but ultimately sports departments of newspapers are known as the toy department for good reason and we have great fun. And the, what I love, well, many things I love about the dynamic of this job is that your biggest rivals are your biggest friends. So if I get done for an award, I, I'll be the first one at the bar saying, fantastic, you've had a brilliant, you've had a brilliant year. It's a very healthy environment. I mean, cutthroat. And, you know, some people succumb to the work, family issues. They want to get spend more time with their family drink i think for some people but actually now this new generation i mean it's scary they are so good it's like they've all swallowed a thesaurus they are all brilliant in terms of they're so socially aware and they all spend most of their summers doing the tour de france the day after doing <laughs> Le tap on their bikes <laughs> and i'm going i'm just going out for a sort of little jog along sort of rio beachfront and they're also racing each other to I think you do okay. You've done a few marathons. You're a wild water swimmer, done the tide. Yeah, but I've kind of fallen into those things. Yeah. I've heard about this um, visualization technique that you do five minutes to make up for lack of sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah. And how you you devised it? I can't remember where I got it from. I like most of the things, I'll have nicked it. And it was so, I'm quite final like four four and a half hours but i do need like five minutes like the japanese you spend a lot of time in tokyo yeah if you see a japanese worker with his head on his computer having a five minute sleep it's it's not an issue in yeah. fact because they know that you know your productivity is going to be better afterwards so like t- today manchester united are playing chelsea i've got a long drive back tonight three hours sleep and then all this stuff tomorrow so i will go when i get to old trafford i'll have this five minute just sort of kip in the car. And I always set an alarm and I always wake up before the alarm goes off. But it's basically a visualization technique that you close your eyes, sit back in your, in your car seat 
and you just visualize going into a house. It could be any house. For me, it's a New York brownstone because I spent a bit of time in New York. And um, yeah, you sort of work, you're walking up the steps. It's it's the the motion is the most important thing. So you're actually sort of taking this journey, and you get into the hallway. Sounds a bit weird, this, but you get into the hallway and there are two rooms there. One, there's a party going on on the right, it's all noisy, and there's one that's completely quiet on the left. And then you walk into that, and by the time you get into that room, I don't know because I'm asleep, (laughs) but it works. I mean, it works for me anyway. Wow, have you heard that before? No, I've not heard that, no. Well, I'd I'd be going to the party room, I won't be able to go. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Manchester woman. I just just call Phil Neville and get him to talk to me for five minutes, and it works every time. Maybe Phil Neville's in the room on the left. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Um, One thing that I wanted to talk to you about quickly was, you've said to me several times that sometimes you wish that you lost everything. Yeah. So you'd have to start again and rebuild something. Tell me about that. I love that challenge. I love that idea of, yeah, because it's down to you and your wits and everything is stripped bare and you absolutely start again, whether it's, yeah. I mean, I've been fortunate with my career in terms of I've kind of gone to places that wanted me, but at some point, you know, there will come a moment when people get they get rid of you. And I absolutely know exactly what I'll do. What? So, but I always have this thing at the start of it. So I go out on New Year's Eve, go to a, to a daft party, dress up as I don't know Billy Bunter or whatever, and then about three o'clock in the morning, I always have this moment: say, right, what are you going to do this year? Every year, I have to do something new. So whether it's a marathon, was I wrote a film script last year, which didn't do very well, which was a bit annoying. But um, but yeah, absolutely new challenge each year. It's like I always say to my kids: two new countries each year. You've got to explore the world. You have a finite time here. I mean, I'm quite healthy, so I'll probably live a touch wood into sort of 80s, 90s. But absolutely, go to new places. You know, the moment you wake up in the morning and you're not jumping out of bed, I always have my passport on me, just in case that opportunity, partly because of work-wise, but that opportunity to explore. I mean, I was lucky. My parents chucked me at school in Paris briefly and in Munich for a term when I was a kid. And it was brilliant. I think about that every day because it gives you, and that's why I hate Brexit, hate Brexit on many levels, also particularly the damage it's done to sort of our kids' generation, um, but also that opportunity to go to a country and to experience. And even though I'm not in touch with my old Munich friends or Parisian friends, the fact that I know they're out there living a life that you know that makes me feel warm inside. And I think it gives me. Unfortunately, my French and my German isn't very good, um, but just uh, that. Yeah, that curiosity of other countries. And one of the great things of being a really bad runner is that people don't feel threatened by you. So if I, so in Russia, when we were there for the World Cup, St. Petersburg, Moscow, wherever, I would get up in the morning and go for a run. I would go through areas that if you walk through, people would have stopped me and said, what are you doing here? But if you're a runner, you know, you just sort of amble your way through. Um, and I got into some really interesting places. So you've got to explore the world. And that's coming back to the 13, 14 year old me, the op- I knew I could see the world doing this. What's your book going to be about? Uh, well, I've written six or seven. The last one did okay. But you, you do it because it's cathartic, because you enjoy it. Um, it'll be, yeah. I mean, I've started it. Is that about your life or? It's a bit of both. It's about yeah, this country's relationship with football. Look forward to it. How did you feel about your script not doing well? He just said that. So I know you were working on that. How did um, you process that? Coming back to this bedrock of belief, I went, 
idiots. Why didn't they want it? Why, <laughs> yeah. why didn't Netflix want to buy it? It's good. Um, I mean, to be fair, David Harewood did the, um, he narrated and he did an unbelievable job. So I was so proud from that element. Um, I thought it was good, but you know, but it's quite good when you take yourself out of your comfort zone. And you, I always try to do something like that each year. And actually it's a very sobering experience. And you realize that you are, you're trying to do the, the job that a professional, a real professional scriptwriter just knows how to, it's like me saying, well, I'm going to go and be a plumber. And then being surprised when the radiator falls off the wall, you know, it, it's actually quite good. And then there's an element of stick to what you're good at, fairly good at. And what would you say you're really good at? Um, I've got a work ethic. I think that is my greatest strength. I get up and get on with things. Uh, it's important to make things happen, whether it's setting up interviews, whether it's making sure you're going to all the matches, doing more matches than other people. I'm probably quite competitive like that. Um, what am I good at? I'm quite, I'm, I'm quite, I think I'm quite funny. You, know? <laughs> you are funny. I mean, I quite, <laughs> I mean, I, nothing I enjoy more than going with friends and just playing around with words and just messing around with words. And yeah. And I, another thing, I really enjoy my own company. You know, I'm like, do you enjoy being sociable? But. I find humor in a lot of things and I find joy in a lot of things. And I also find everyone's sort of very negative in this country, but I always find a lot of hope in a lot of things. Just walking down a street here and just hearing people talking about football and the work that's going on here, just seeing all these buildings. One of the American owners of Leighton Orient, I said, why Leighton Orient? And he said, look out the window. And I said, oh, I can see a cranes. And he said, Exactly. Cranes are a symbol of hope. So, yeah, I'd say, I mean, we are so lucky to be on this planet and to be healthy and to have this opportunity to, to travel and to meet people, you know. It's good luck. I've got one final question. And, well, Go on. we're really grateful for your time. But the question is that we ask all our guests, um, what is the most beautiful moment of your life so far? I mean, well, both children um, most proud about. To know, still got to find it. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep, yeah, momentum. I mean, one thing I have taken from my father, he had a really, this is kind of like an old family wound, but dad had this amazing job in Portsmouth. He was basically the architect who was asked to redevelop Portsmouth. Amazing old boats, museums. And then Prince Charles, one way or another, basically made sure that my father, who's a quite well-known modernist architect, uh, he didn't want a modernist architect on it. And he took that away from dad. And dad just, he didn't respond to that. And uh, he, you know, I mean, it was interesting. Some of the obituaries when dad died, they mentioned how heartbroken dad had been. And he kept it a little bit from us. Um, but yeah, just to see how heartbroken he was. And if you looked at his career, it was all momentum, 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 awards, amazing buildings. And then it kind of stopped. And I just thought, You've got to fight back when something like that happens to you. You know, if you lose your job, you lose a job, whatever. You don't win something that you were hoping to win. You just fight back. So, yeah. And those moments will, will happen in the future. And you're always striving. You're never there. You're never there. Thank you so much. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Yeah.
one of the things that really blew me away about Henry was his his palpable drive and determination that is as strong now as it was when he began his career in journalism. Henry mentions that he didn't have a childhood trauma, unlike many of our other guests on Lobster Brain. And at the same time, right at the end of the podcast there, he mentioned the trauma that his own father had. And I wonder how much that influenced him to to have this drive. And he talks about his family being highly accomplished. I don't think he was that close to his parents, from what he was saying. So it was interesting that maybe the environment he was in, you know, everybody was achieving such incredible things. His mum was a, as an accomplished artist, his sister's an artist. He just seemed quite sad at the end of that, when he was telling us that story at the end. I, f- I think he really, really felt that for his dad. And did he feel that his dad shouldn't have allowed that to impact him as much as he did? Henry speaks so many times in our conversation about having to keep going and that you've always got to keep running, that he's had to pull over in a lay-by before now to almost be sick because he's got a, a call from the office to say that somebody scooped him on a story. So you can really feel that, you know, he's never, never happy. He always wants to be better at whatever he's doing and kind of push those boundaries. Yeah, and I think the, you know, this high-performing environment that you're talking about that he was brought up in, he speaks so fondly and he clearly admires so much his father, his mum and his brother and sister. And yet I felt really sad when he mentioned that he doesn't feel close to them and he only speaks to his brother and sister once a year, perhaps, even though he thinks of them so highly. What really strikes me with Henry is how much he cares about the people he writes about. And I know he has to call out some practices or performance in some of his work but when he goes to do a one-to-one interview or somebody asks him specifically I mean I think a couple of days after we recorded this he called me to say that Eric Ten Hag had asked him to go and do the interview of the season and I think that's because he really cares about allowing that interviewee to use that platform to get their story out and handle in a certain way. So he's not just going for the the juicy headline. And I know that he cares. He interviewed Calvin Phillips and he was really conscious of how that interview came across because of Calvin, Calvin's had been in prison. So I feel there's a real heart and he kind of has a parental approach to a lot of these players are very young people, aren't they? And he cares about how they come across. Yeah, it felt like there was a real deep meaning to his work. And as you say, he's got this strong sense of empathy. And and that empathy obviously comes across in his work. And I think for you, the listener, any form of work that you're in, to have that empathy is is a huge advantage. The other thing that really blew me away about Henry was his, as we've mentioned, his work ethic. But he said that he survives on probably three or four hours sleep a night, which I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> But the visualization exercise is also really useful. And I think that can be applied in a number of different ways. And as he said, the movement part of it is really important. And then the the real real clear visualization. And he he uses that to get sleep, but you can use that in in many different ways in your life. So Donna, yet again, you're in a a very glamorous place and I'm in Manchester. (laughs) (laughs) and every time we kind of have this conversation she seems to be somewhere so I actually feel it's I feel so proud of what we've been able to do over the first season and it has been a journey hasn't it because we started recording some of these I think in November 
And for me, I just feel honoured that so many top lobsters have wanted to come and share their time with us and be so open with us. And some of them have even said it's cathartic. So it's been amazing to have the opportunity to learn from people who, of course, they're hugely successful, but they also go through so much of the same stuff that we all do. Yeah, firstly, so I'm proud because I actually remembered to bring my microphone to this exotic place. <laughs> so yeah, I've done well. Um, but yeah, just talking about that and thinking about all the incredible guests that we've been lucky enough to have on, it just fills me with a sense of, I don't know, joy and pride, really. And, you know, just thinking of all those conversations that we've had, you know, with Dr. Lisa Miller, with Sadhguru, with Phil Neville, Tim Howard, David Moyes, and there's a whole lot of wisdom from each guest that I think I'll be listening back to myself and, and you can listen back as well. Mm. Well, I mean, I can't even put a value on just personally how much I've got out of all these episodes and these people who have shared and downloaded their views and shared their mistakes and their hopes and their ambitions with us. And things like Alistair Campbell telling us about how he grades how he feels every day on, on the scale of one to 10. I mean, that's, I've had so much feedback from listeners who've got in touch to say they now do that. So that's amazing that, you know, we've been able to impart some of his wisdom there. And again, you know, Dr. Lisa Miller, that conversation we had with her with the the two doors, you know, so many of us are trying to get through that red door. And if we just turn a fraction to the left or the right, there's a yellow one and that's our door. That's got our name on it. That for me has just been liberating because I've spent a lot of time in the past trying to get through the red door and, and, um, and yeah, I don't do that anymore. That's great to hear. And as you mentioned, Lisa, uh, what did you say? I'm in a glamorous place. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, it's not so glamorous because it's Georgia. And, uh, but I am here with the England under 21 football team. And today I was speaking with the head of security, who is a big Lobster Brain fan. And he was speaking about legacy and Sadhguru. And he took a lot from that because he realized that people are trying to leave a legacy and they're not living their life fully. And I think that was the real message from Sadhguru, just to live your life fully and then let the legacy take care of itself. And I mean, Henry even mentioned Tim Howard and the the idea of the difference between self-belief and confidence. And he's taken that on board himself. And, and even thinking about today is Father's Day. And I've had a couple of messages from my dad and, you know, some of the wisdom that my dad left for you. He's pretty amazing as well. And the moment I will never forget was listening to Mo Gaudat before we went down to London the night before and understanding that his son always said life is beautiful and me having that expression in our life because of our friend Steve that we lost and being able to take a bauble down to him that had life is beautiful on. It's made me realise that you know, we are so connected and that's just a moment I'll, I'll never forget. Yeah. And I, I, it really brings it back for me and I feel really emotional hearing that. And that take, does actually take it right back to the start. And it was a beautiful beginning and thanks for making it a beautiful ending. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lobster Brain. Lobster Brain is taking a break over the summer 
In the meantime, there are so many great episodes for you to listen to. Do check out the episode Lobster Lessons, which gives you insights into some of the key things we've observed from speaking to such highly successful people. If you've got ideas of people you'd like to hear from on Lobster Brain, why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and make your suggestion there, or find us on social media at Lobster Brain Pod. If you're enjoying it, please do follow and share this podcast, and that way more people will get to find us. Thank you and have a great summer. Thank you.